Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. The next two episodes are going to be some really heavy ones again, where we're talking with Dr. McKinney Chisholm-Straker about human trafficking, how it intersects with the emergency department, what to do if you suspect that a patient is being trafficked, what our legal responsibilities are, and the overall scope of the problem. It's an extensive discussion that we split into two parts. Part one, which is what you're listening to right now, is all about the general scope. How many people do we think are living in the United States that are being trafficked? What is the emergency department's role? And a little bit on recognition and what sorts of screening tools are out there. Now, Dr. Chisholm Straker is an emergency medicine physician, primarily dealing with adults, but their ER also sees children. I'm coming at it as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, so only dealing with kids. The discussion wanders back and forth a little bit between children and adults. The general approach is largely the same, but some of the legal requirements are a little bit different. With that, I'm gonna let McKinney introduce herself, and away we go. So I'm McKinney Chisholm-Straker. I am an emergency medicine physician in the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. I am an assistant professor at Mount Sinai Brooklyn, which is a community site. So that means no residents. It's kind of, despite what people might imagine, even though technically it's in the borders of New York City, it mirrors more like what most of EDs in this country look like in that you're you're it. You transfer a lot of patients uh, for a lot of specialty needs, including pediatrics. So that's what I do clinically. I am predominantly a researcher. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time developing studies, doing trainings, data collection, etc. I've been doing anti-trafficking work for the past 14 years now, and I'm the co-founder of an organization called Heal Trafficking, which is an international NGO of survivors of trafficking and multidisciplinary professionals doing anti-trafficking work using a public health framework. What was your entrance into doing trafficking work? Was there anything in particular that led you to to want to do that work or, or how did you get started? Well, I, like most people, enjoy free food and I went to a free lunchtime talk in the first week or two of my medical school career. And someone that I went to actually undergrad with was speaking, Kat Chan, who's now the Director of Office of Trafficking in Persons, uh, which is in Department of Health and Human Services, was talking to the medical students about our role in this anti-trafficking movement, um, specifically saying, you know, that anecdotally, at least, uh, from NGOs that she'd worked with, from work that she'd done uh, on the ground, recognizing that people with a trafficking experience were presenting for healthcare, um, and then in particular to emergency departments. And I went into med school knowing that I was going into emergency medicine. So I only wanted to go to med school to do what I do now. And so after she talked to us, after the lunch, I went up to Kat and said, you know, hey, I hear what you're saying. What can I do as someone who will be going into emergency medicine and was tasked with educating EM clinicians about this patient population? And then as I started doing a bit more of that, I spent the first two years learning quite a lot, listening uh, quite a lot to survivors and to those who served them not in the clinical setting. I realized that there were a lot of evidence gaps in the literature and so came to recognize that I wasn't going to be the clinician that just went to a shift and then went home. But in order to serve this population better, I was going to have to help build out the evidence base. So that's how I got started. This is a topic I wanted to, to chat about 
because it, it terrifies me a little bit, mostly from the standpoint that, uh, and I don't actually know whether this is true. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you. I've always been told that people who were being trafficked will come through the emergency department at some point in the preceding year. And so I, I've always felt like I am probably seeing these patients, but I don't know it. And uh, if if we do come across a victim of trafficking, I'm not always entirely sure what to what to do. I think that's a lot of clinicians' fears. When I first started doing like, well, at Sinai there Wednesday, but every site probably has their own day, but you know, the conference for the residents doing like the 20 minute or 40 minute or hour long lectures, a lot of attendings would say, oh my gosh, I think that I saw that person a year ago, two days ago, a week ago, and I think I sent them to the wrong place. Um, or I didn't recognize it and didn't know what to do. And in retrospect, in hindsight, I see that that may have been someone who was surviving trafficking. So, um, there is a little bit of literature out there. Most of it is convenience sample data for probably obvious reasons, but because technically human trafficking is a crime and a lot of people don't even necessarily know that they are being victimized in that way or that they qualify as a victim of a crime, they're not going to raise their hand and say, hey, this is happening to me. This is the name for it because they may not know that. And there's a lot of baggage that comes along with raising your hand and saying that and disclosing that. So we are going to miss it. So it's, it's obligatorily convenience sample data, but there's ranges from 26 to 88% of people with a trafficking experience have presented for healthcare at some point. Um, I did a study between 20, 2012 and 2014 um, of survivors, who all adults, who were outside of their trafficking experience from across the nation. And that was just convenience sample data talking with NGOs that serve trafficking survivors. And of the almost 68% who said they saw at least one clinician while they were being trafficked, 56% of them presented to an ED, um, which probably isn't, I don't think it would be surprising, right? I mean, we're always open. Everyone has seen us at some point um, <laughs> for some reason. So, um, and if we look at federal data, we know that between a quarter and a third of communities use the ED every year. And, and you know, not that doesn't mean that people are all having STEMIs, right? That sometimes people have colds and they need a note right. for work or whatever. But we're seeing them, certainly. The thing that I try to remind people of every single time that we talk about trafficking is that our job has not changed. We are clinicians. We are not law enforcement. Our job is not to find crime, investigate. That's law and order, SVU. That's you know criminal intent. That's a whole different show. Our job is high quality healthcare every time, all the time. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. They, nine times out of 10, people don't come to us because they would like to report a crime. They come to us because they're seeking health care. Whether or not there's something else underlying that is a different story. There are some things for which we're mandated reporters, but our first job is always, 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 what brought you in today? Have I identified or recognized something that might be a life or limb threatening emergency? After that, we want to make it a place where people feel safe to disclose, that we can connect them to services if they're ready for that, if that's what they want, and if that's in their best interest. And we do that all the time for child maltreatment. We do it for intimate partner violence. We do it for elder abuse. We do it for abuse of vulnerable adults with intellectual developmental delay or anything like that. So it's it's really not outside of our wheelhouse. It's just a, a, a term that we have not been, it hasn't been in our vernacular. And so we're a little less comfortable. But if we think about it in those terms, We've been doing this the whole time, and we're perfectly qualified and capable to keep doing it. So I think that actually leads perfectly into where I kind of wanted to go next is, is can we start by just defining what what human trafficking is and, and what activities fall with, within that term? Sure. Um, 
So it's very commonly called modern day slavery, which I think is probably fine for the lay person. Um, For our purposes, it's really important that we know the actual definition because if we're mandated reporters, we're mandated reporters for for minors. And so if we don't know the actual definition, we could get ourselves in a little bit of hot water there. So I'm going to tell you the definition and then how that sort of shakes down in a, in a practical way, because the, the legal definition is really cumbersome. <laughs> um, so the federal definition, and I, I'm just going to share the federal definition because every state has its own definition, which is really quite difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> makes it makes it really easy to come up yeah. with something that uh, that can be education across the country. Exactly. It's it's like why fifty states? Why? <laughs> um, but so the federal definition is human trafficking is the recruitment, harboring, transportation, obtaining, and or providing of a person by the use of force, fraud, and or coercion for the purposes of labor and or sexual exploitation. So, huh, right, that first column of... Uh, <laughs> I feel like, like to me, it, that feels like that chart whenever uh, you have to go, like, I don't know, redo a driver's license or a, or a passport, and there's like, there's like three different columns of things that you have to bring and 50 different options within them. Yes, exactly. It's three different columns, um, and it's it can be quite painful. So I, when I'm visually talking about this, I do break it up into those three columns. Um, so the recruitment, harboring, transportation, providing, and obtaining is one column. It's the first column. There's an and or on each of those elements. So despite the moniker of ha- human trafficking, there is absolutely zero movement required for a person to be trafficked. People are trafficked in their own country, in their own state, in their own city, in their own home. And people ironically, perhaps, have appeared to have freedom of movement in that they're coming to the ED, right? No one's preventing them necessarily from coming to the ED um, in that particular moment. Um, People seem to have freedom of movement. They can go to the grocery store. Um, So despite, you know, what 2020 or the media and, and movies will tell us, it's not necessarily, and quite often is not, people shackled in a cage in the basement of some place. And Providing and obtaining, I think, is difficult because people are trying to figure out, like, how do you provide or obtain a person? Slavery has been illegal since 1865. Sure. That being said, if I'm responsible for someone, I have control in their life. Say I'm the adult who is a legal guardian of a minor um, or I'm an employer who the person that is working for me is here on a visa and only is documented in this country because they work for me. I have control over them to some serious degree. I can provide them to someone else. That's an example. Um, recruitment is the way that everyone finds a job anywhere ever, right? Like you heard about it from a friend, you saw a flyer, you read online, whatever. Um, it's why it's so easy to do. You just recruited someone, you told them you had a great job or a great opportunity, whatever. The second column is a bit of where I would say the quote unquote, the money is. That's that's the clutch thing, uh, force, fraud, or coercion. Um, force is exactly what one might imagine it is. It's someone beat me, someone held a gun to my head, whatever. Um, fraud is a bit difficult and is often seen in in tandem or in, with uh, force or coercion, but it's, you're going to make this amount of money and then I don't make this amount of money because you're taking money out for my housing or um, something else that I didn't know was going to happen and I did not agree to, or that you told me the job was this and it turned out to be this. Coercion is why it's the cheapest startup business there is. It's that you believe I have power in your life and then I do. So coercion looks like, really, the question is, what wouldn't you do to protect yourself, a loved one, someone you're worried about or you care about, right? What wouldn't you do to protect your kid, to protect your brother, 
or your auntie or something like that. Um, if someone tells me that they're going to hurt so-and-so if I don't do X, Y, Z, or they're going to hurt me, or they're going to use legal means to control me in some way, and I don't know that there's this thing called trafficking, they have control over me, right? Um, and then legal, uh, sorry, uh, labor and or sexual exploitation is simply that I am doing some act legal or not, and someone else is profiting off of that. So it doesn't have to be money per se, but something of commercial value. Um, and so that might be housing or they're getting a kickback from someone else because of the actions that I'm doing. They're doing, they're getting something that they otherwise would have had to pay for. And so what is that? Gosh, what does that look like? Right. It looks like, so I'm doing a study now. So I'll just give you some examples from some of the people that we're seeing in our EDs that are telling us these stories and that I've seen through over the years. One person was forced to shoplift. So that's an illegal activity, but that is labor. This person was forced to shoplift and then the items were resold. And if this person didn't do what they were told, they got beat. The element here is someone is profiting off of this person's activities, whether they be legal or not. And there's a real risk to this person, uh, of danger, right, of them coming, saying, I don't want to do this. Um, it's hard for them to leave that situation. They reasonably believe they can't leave this situation without very serious consequences. And then actually, to make it even more fun, there's a caveat. And the caveat is that for minors, for sex trafficking, there does not need to be a third party who's participating. When I was prepping for this, I, I think I was kind of surprised that survival sex would fall underneath of trafficking. Yep. Yep. So just for those who don't know, survival sex is when an adult 18 years or older is engaging in sex acts of any kind um, or sort of sex, sexual innuendo for things that they can't otherwise find ways to meet their basic needs. So like shelter or clothing or medications, something like that. But if that's a minor and it doesn't matter if they're emancipated or not, there doesn't need to be a third party involved. So if you're 14 or 17 and 364 days old and you engage in any kind of commercial sexual activity, including stripping, dancing at a quote unquote gentleman's club, child abuse imagery, formerly known as child pornography, anything that has some sort of sexual innuendo to it, that's human trafficking period, done, do not pass, go. You don't need to find anyone on the other end. The other end of that, their age is irrelevant. It's really just about the person in front of us. If they were a minor when they were engaging in what would otherwise have been called survival sex, that is human trafficking. Only for sex trafficking. That caveat does not exist for labor trafficking in this country at this time. Before we move on any further, I, I try to ask this of, of everybody that that I talked to is, are there with within this realm specific preferred language, either when we're speaking with our patients or when we are documenting, uh, or you know, on the other side, are there specific terms or words to to avoid? Um, for us as clinicians, uh, I try to avoid the word victim almost at all costs because it's a legal law enforcement sort of framework. And for us as clinicians, our job is patients. My job is not to determine who the good guy is and the bad guy is pretty much ever. My job is certainly to be concerned about patients, but that victim perpetrator language is for law enforcement. Our job is the patient in front of us. That's it. Um, so I refer to all of my patients as patients. And I might say they have been victimized, or I think they may have been victimized by traffic, by human trafficking, but that language is very different than saying this is a victim um, and this is the perpetrator. I also try to avoid the language of saying human trafficking and trafficker when I'm talking to a patient, because that's probably not the language they use. And we know this from just doing regular medicine stuff, right? Like if I'm saying things like, yes, we're going to, you're going to have a cholecystectomy. What does that mean? 
right? Like that's not language that our patients use. Right. I, I say you might need to have your gallbladder taken out. A surgeon will have to talk with you a little bit more about that, right? So we, we punt all the time. We say, this isn't, I'm not the surgeon. Why would I pretend that I'm also the detective who's going to do the investigating? I'm, that's not my job. I think that's a lovely way to put it because I have I have a hard time not wanting to just be like no there's this patient in front of me and and of course I can figure out who is who is right and who's wrong and and how to protect this patient. You had a fantastic quote in one of your papers that I was reading that that went to the effect of many young people in trafficking situations did not identify as victims and and some feel a strong sense of agency which I I have really tried to take to to heart. It's it's a tough thing I think for us especially as ED docs are excitement. We love to be useful. We want to help. But in the work that I've done of, over these past years um, and doing work also not in clinical settings, but uh, not in medically clinical settings anyway, but in um, with NGOs who do service work, a lot of these youth, this is how they like things that we would call sex trafficking under the law and that we should under the law. That's how they survived. They were leaving very often abusive situations at home. And this is how they found to survive. And I need to respect that and the law. And they're, they're, you can do both. You can recognize someone's sense of agency and say, hey, like, I'm really glad that A, you got out of what wasn't good for you and that you found a way to survive and that you made it here. I'm worried that what you're doing to survive, you're actually being exploited by someone. And I wonder if there's not a better way, a safer way for you to, you know, carry on surviving and thriving. But a lot of a lot of, especially kids and young adults, don't feel like victims. They feel like they did what they had to do to survive, and they're proud of that. And frankly, they've been surviving without me for this long. So obviously, I'm not the hero in this story. You, you really are uh, are just undercutting my hero complex, which is why I went and, and became an ER doc in the first place. Yeah, I know. Hey, we all did. We all did. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, I, I know you said the data is is kind of sparse, but do we have any idea of the the scope of this in the U.S.? You know, we have to kind of extrapolate a lot adults to kids, but but either adult or pediatric data on the the number of people being trafficked or the the dollar amount of the the you know economic value being obtained. This is a tough one um, because there's lots of numbers that float about out there um, and they have some value. But so in the early 2000s, the Department of State or State Department uh, decided that they wanted to try to estimate how many people were trafficked in the U.S. on a national level. And they came up with some pretty wide ranging numbers over a couple of years, um, somewhere between 15 and 50 ish thousand people were trafficked, they thought, into the country every year. But a few things to think about. Number one, that was just the people who were trafficked in that year. That didn't account for people who came in the year before <laughs> and the year before that and who were not able to or didn't leave their situation for years. Uh, it didn't account for people who were U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents who live here, who are of this earth, this soil, and were also trafficked. It didn't account for people who came in and other via other means and were trafficked, right? So people who were smuggled in or were here on a visa and then became trafficked while uh, they were in the U.S. Um, and then when you think about the fact that lots of local studies have numbers higher than those, then you realize that, well, those numbers couldn't possibly be right. And when you try to figure out how did they come to those numbers, the methodology is extremely opaque. No one could reproduce that because we don't have that published anywhere on how they came up with those numbers. So to me, that's 
useless numbers. That's useless data um, for me as a, as a researcher. And frankly, as a clinician, because if I don't know how you came up with those numbers, I don't know what definitions you were using. I don't know how you counted people. Um, and in one year, law enforcement, law enforcement recognized 40,000 people as survivors of trafficking. Now, we know that for every crime, there are a bunch of other people that also survived that crime that didn't report for any number of reasons. If we take the analogy or the metaphor of sexual assault, right, and we think about all the patients that we see who there's a concern for sexual assault, but they don't want to make a report to police, but they came for health care. There's more of them who came for health care than want to make a report to police. Similarly, right. Right. there are going to be folks who don't make it to law enforcement. So it's it's really, I think it's unfair to use to rely on those numbers. I'm doing a study now. We're trying to develop a screening tool that's comprehensive for labor and sex trafficking for adults. We have over 2,600 people enrolled at this point with a 1.3% prevalence of trafficking. So and this is random selection, not convenient sample data. So in REDs, you know, if, if we mathematically looked at, if we said, okay, well, we're doing this in five emergency departments now. If we just looked at one ED and said, if that prevalence held true, if 1.3% of our patients have a lifetime of any time trafficking experience, and we see 110,000 people, 110,000 visits a year, We've already passed better, the national estimate. <laughs> yeah, and those are those numbers that that terrify me. Like I'm, I'm sure I'm seeing some of these patients and not picking them up. Of course, of course. I mean, we we are human. We are going to miss things. Um, <laughs> yes, I am perfect. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank sorry, you. everyone, but doctor, yeah, everyone yeah, else. You. you know, I, I guess that that moves me right into my next question. Then is so knowing that with the numbers aren't perfect, but it's probably higher than what that quoted statistic is frequently. Do you have any recommendations on screening or recognition? Or are there any standard tools out there for trying to find people who are being trafficked? And then, you know, again, we'll break it down if there's anything that's pediatric specific. So right now, today, what is today? The 7th of January, 2019. We do not have a comprehensive screening tool for human trafficking for adult or pediatric populations. Um, there is one screening tool that is validated for use in a healthcare setting, and that is the Greenbaum tool. Um, it is only useful or validated in 13 to 17-year-olds, and it is only useful for screening for sex trafficking. It's only useful if they are English-speaking. And it's only applied either when the clinician has a suspicion for trafficking, which means then you have to be trained in trafficking, right? And what that means, or it's useful in specific, quote unquote, high risk chief complaints, which I can't go through all of the, like you'd have to sort of read the study um, to go, get a look at all of those chief complaints. But some of them would be like behavioral um, referrals from schools when they send the, the kid in for an assessment, quote unquote, because the kid threw a chair or whatever, got into a fight, something like that. That is a very specific and small population, and we know that at least worldwide, labor trafficking is the most common form of human trafficking, um, despite media coverage and, and the hype around sex trafficking. So we don't have a screening tool, is what I would say, to meet the needs of most of our patients. That being said, I don't, and, and despite the fact that I'm trying to develop a screening tool, I don't know that that's as important as all of us knowing what trafficking might look like and what we should do, similar to how we think about child maltreatment, right? We think about um, the presentation of the person in front of us. And if the HPI makes sense with the injury, if there's an injury, or with what we're seeing in front of us, if we're worried about a, a weird dynamic, 
that we're seeing clinic like in the ED, then we'll start sort of turning and we wonder what else, what else could be going on here? Is this abuse? Is this something else? And if we don't have human trafficking on that differential, that's how we miss it. And frankly, you know, I find because I don't have a screening tool, I have to assess like everyone else. And like everyone else, even though this is my life's work, I have probably almost certainly missed cases. The most important thing we can do is convey to the person in front of us that we care and that the ED and when we when a patient sees an ED for any reason, we are all representing each other. So I want them to feel that they can come to any ED whenever they need to. And when they're ready, maybe they just tell us um, or they know that this is a safe place, a place that we would want to connect them to services if we knew that something else was going on. They may not call it trafficking. They may not know that. They just may know this kind of really sucks and I really don't like what's happening to me and I want this to stop. I don't know what it's called. Maybe I didn't even know there was a name for it, but I want it to stop and I'm going to go to the ED for help. Sometimes it just looks like having a frank conversation with people and I say to them, you know, I'm, I'm worried about you. I don't really know exactly what's going on, but I'm worried about you for these reasons. Um, and then be okay with silence and let sit, let them tell you something. And, and if someone, and many people don't want to disclose, they're not ready to disclose and we need to trust them on that. There's a variety of reasons, largely their safety and the safety of others that they may not be ready to disclose. And so I just say, Hey, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I still think that you're in danger. If you ever think that this is a place you want to come, I hope that you will come here when you are ready for more. And I don't think I can wrap that up any better than she did. That's the end of part one. Part two will be the next episode up in your feed. In part two, we talk about what sorts of healthcare needs are common amongst victims of trafficking, what sorts of resources are available to them and to you as a healthcare provider, what's the legal risk to the patient once they've disclosed that they are experiencing trafficking, what does that mean for you, and a little bit of a rundown on other work that Dr. Chisholm Straker is doing research-wise, as well as through her organization, Heal Trafficking. This has been the Little Big Med Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. 